0: Ahead of Their Time is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Producer Joe, what do you fancy watching today? You know, I'm a bit of a dummy, so I'm
1: feeling like Hmm. I need a bit of historical
0: grounding in all this math we keep talking about. Ah, well then this one is too easy. There's a course on here called Big Data, How Data Analytics is Changing the World. Perfect! That's the spirit, Joe. Later in the podcast, you can tell people what you learned. In the meantime, we have a great deal for our listeners, a month of unlimited access when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com time. So let's check it out and then catch up a little later on in the podcast. Here at five thirty-eight, we hear a lot about how numbers, statistics, and analytics are taking all the fun out of sports. Analytics no, don't, don't work at work. all. It's just a crap to some nothing. people who were really smart, made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. We're usually pretty skeptical about all that. We think numbers can help you understand sports and maybe even transform how they're played for the better. But today, we've got a story about a guy who was so obsessed with the power of statistics that he ended up forgetting soccer is a game that people are actually supposed to enjoy. This week on Ahead of Their Time, it's the story of Charles Reap, the British Air Force commander who pioneered modern sports analytics and helped ruin English soccer in the process. And to tell this story, I've got my producer Joe Sykes in the studio with me. Hi, Joe. Hey, Neil. How's it going? As you can probably tell, Joe is English. That's true, Neil. I am actually English. And uh, this is a story about English soccer, something that you're pretty obsessed with. Well, we actually call it football in England, Neil. Right, right. Okay, football. Well, here in America, we call it soccer. Okay, Neil. Well, for all you Americans
1: out there, I'll call it soccer as well for the rest of the story. (laughs) Thanks, Joe. So I am really obsessed um, with English soccer, and I'm also obsessed with why England are so bad. Recently, England lost to Iceland in the Euro Championships, and it kind of epitomised everything that's bad about English soccer. We were slow and uninspired and tactically inept. But this is the most abject failure that I can recall. And our story today kind of looks at the roots of the English national team's problems. And it turns out a lot of it lies at the feet of one guy. One man. Right, this guy, Charles Reap. So... That's the story we're going to tell today. What did this guy do? How did he go so wrong? Well, Neil, we'll get there. But first, I need to take you back to 1953, to London, England, which is actually my hometown, and to the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Elizabeth crowned
2: the head of a great family of nations. The coronation
1: brought with it an upswell of patriotic fervour. The English had emerged from the horror of the Second World War and were looking forward to a decade of peace and prosperity.
3: So June 53, I think, is this real high point of British self-confidence.
1: Jonathan Wilson is a journalist and wrote a book about the history of soccer tactics.
3: The war ended eight years earlier. Rationing was, was slowly coming to an end. And also... 1953 is a key year in terms of communication, in terms of media. People buy televisions for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II.
1: With those TVs, they were now able to watch live soccer for the first time ever. And they saw English soccer and they thought their soccer, just like their society, is really better than everyone else's.
4: Congratulations for Stanley Matthews and a winner's medal at long last
1: are fitting rewards for the most dazzling sportsmen in world soccer. Because you see, the English had this idea...
3: Quite a lot of people still believe that England was, as, as the mother of football, was still the greatest nation.
1: It's kind of an old imperial arrogance. The English team even played in a place that was called the Empire Stadium and they have not been beaten there for 90 years.
2: One of the best internationals of recent years ends with England winning despite another brilliant Ford goal for Wales. England retired from the field, their record still intact.
1: But then the Hungarians arrived.
2: England in white shirts take the field with their Hungarian opponents at
1: Wembley. Hungary was this champion team filled with some of the best players in the world. They'd gone 24 games unbeaten before playing England, they were the Olympic champions, and they were also socialists.
3: So you can see this as a a political clash, the emerging socialist world of Eastern Europe against the the old world of, of, of England and Britain and the empire.
1: Because of that, the game was billed as the match of the century. And as usual, the English were in this confident mood.
3: And within a minute, Hungary had taken the lead.
2: Hiddy Kuti receives and he bangs it past Medic for a goal. Hungary, one up in the first 45 seconds.
1: Within 30 minutes, it was 4-1 to Hungary and they just kept going. The Olympic champions now started an absolute orgy of scoring. They scored again. It's a goal! And again.
3: And although Hungary only won 6-3, it could have been 12-3. I mean, England were very, very lucky to get three, and Hungary were very unlucky to only get six. And there's almost a sense in the second half for Hungary back off that they, they sort of think they, you know, we've embarrassed them enough. Hungary, the most brilliant team ever to visit Britain, shatter the
1: unbeaten home record England has held in 90 years of football. The result sent a seismic shock through English soccer. But to the rest of the world, it wasn't that surprising. Because even though the English thought they were the best, they actually played in a very old-fashioned style. Their idea of attacking was a fast winger, dribbling the ball down the field and crossing it to a big striker who would whack it into the goal. There wasn't much concern for things like tactics or teamwork. Hungary, on the other hand...
3: Their manager, Gustav Shebesch believed that the football he was playing was socialist football in which every cog in the team had its role, whereas English football was still very individualistic.
1: Hungary were like a whirlwind. Their midfielders swapped in and out of positions, switching sides of the field, but they were all moving together, in sync, in the pursuit of a single objective.
3: No one player has primacy over anybody else. It was much more, these are cogs in a, in a machine. This machine functions incredibly well because every cog performs its its role and no cog is more important than the other cog.
1: England were rigid and slow. The players moved up and down in lines, never straying from the position set for them at the beginning of the game.
3: The hungry defeat causes people to, to question everything. There's a sense that there was something just moribund about England, about English football, about everything in English life.
1: Even their boots the English team were wearing these big, heavy boots, just like the old boots they used to wear down the coal mines in the north of England.
3: The Hungarians were wearing these sort of cutaway, lightweight boots, much more similar to what we're used to today. And uh, Billy Wright, the England captain, turns to Stan Mortensen, the centre-forward, and says, well, we're going to be all right here, Stan. They're not even wearing the right kit. And, and this this failure to recognise that... Lightweight boots are beneficial. Nobody even considered changing the boots in English football. It's just you did what you'd always done. And after that game, suddenly everything is open to question and open to change.
1: English soccer was ready for a revolution. All these people suddenly had all these ideas about how to make England great again. But there was a guy working in the game who thought he already had the answer.
3: Charles Reap. Charles Reap was born in 1904. He goes into the RAF. That's the Royal Air Force. He has a desk job. He's clearly quite a fussy, quite a fastidious man.
1: He was basically an accountant in the army and a guy who was kind of obsessed with soccer. In the 1930s, Reap attended a series of lectures given by the captain of the Arsenal team, Charlie Jones, about the importance of analysis in soccer coaching. After hearing Jones' lectures, Reap began to understand that studying past actions could help you predict future performance. And that got him thinking. If you created a database of discrete events, you could actually start to analyse soccer games. So for the next 20 years, he worked at his desk job in the Air Force with this idea turning over and over in the back of his mind. And then one day in March 1950, he went to a match between Swindon Town and Bristol City. And he was sitting at the game and suddenly he
3: snapped. He sees Swindon wasting attack after attack after attack. And so he decides in the second half he will start to take notes.
1: He got out some scraps of paper and a pencil and he started notating everything he saw, every discrete action happening on the field. He started creating that database.
3: He then invests in a miner's helmet because uh, a minus helmet has a, has a lamp on the front, so in a dark stand he can, he can see his notebook better. And uh, he, he then regularly goes to Swindon Games for the rest of that season, and with, with the light on his head, he and presumably people desperately flocking to be away from him, this lunatic sitting there in a minus helmet, he, he takes his notes and makes them more and more sophisticated. Picture this guy
1: sitting in a darkened stadium with his old miner's helmet on his head with a little lamp on the front making notes on these big sheets of paper. He even used his wife's table mat to
3: rest on. There's something beautifully homespun about the whole thing. I mean, imagine what he'd done if he'd ever learned how to use a computer. That, I mean, it's genuinely terrifying. On all
1: that paper, in pencil, Reap was writing down every action that happened on the field. He'd realised there was something wrong with English soccer long before anyone else. Every night he'd go home and study his notes and then, at last, he had a realisation.
3: Eventually comes to this conclusion that passing moves are more effective if they have three passes off you in them.
1: For Reep, this was a revelation. Teams can win soccer games as long as they make sure they don't pass the ball more than three times. It was his answer, the holy grail, the secret to success. I
4: have to say something you might say is quite shocking. Here he
1: is in a 1993 BBC radio interview. Not more than three passes.
4: If a team tries to play football and keeps it down to not more than three passes, it will have a much higher chance of winning matches. Passing for the sake of passing can be
1: disastrous. When he watched England lose against Hungary in that fateful game, He thought, this is my chance to solve the problems of English soccer. In those days, they played the soccer clips in newsreels before showing movies. So he went to the theatre over and over and paid the admission fee just so he could see those 10 seconds and understand the build-up to one of the hungry goals. And so for Reap, the Hungarians didn't win that game because of their lightweight boots and intricate interplay or anything like that.
3: Hungry are the most effective when they're being direct.
1: And being direct means playing long-ball soccer. There were a lot of people who came away from the defeat to Hungary and thought England needed to pass the ball and keep possession, just like the Hungarians. But Reap arrived at a very different conclusion. England didn't need to pass more. They needed to pass less. And he had the numbers to prove it. When I see complex
4: moves taking place, I hear how many people say, oh, what good football. I think to myself, does that manager know he's ruining his own team, what he's doing
1: out there? So he started making the rounds, touting this theory to anyone that would listen. And he even started getting into arguments with soccer managers.
2: My name is Graham Ramsey, and I was friends, good friends, with Charles Reap.
1: Graham remembers this one time Reap got into a fight with this manager about the Hungry England game.
2: And this guy starts quoting facts. Uh, And Charles said, let me show you the records of that game.
1: And Reap produced this big folder with every pass and cross and shot.
2: It blew me away. (laughs) When he argued, he knew what he was arguing about. And so you better come back with credence and, and
1: argument on top of that argument. But he was temperamental and he always spoke his mind.
3: He was a fundamentalist. Reap would not accept any kind of questioning of what he was doing.
2: They didn't want to know him. Working the game out by facts and figures seems almost a corrosive attitude. And so he was saying, you know, you got open your eyes. The world has changed. We're living in the, in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Uh, look at the amount of math in our lives.
4: There's a view of the game which is entirely unwelcome to most people. In fact, the style of play depends largely upon
1: mathematics. He became a crusader for analytics at a time when there wasn't really anyone in the soccer world who understood its importance. A couple of coaches worked with him in the 1950s and he had a bit of success, but this idea that statistics can actually win soccer games didn't really catch on. In a culture that was only just realising tactics were actually important, it's not that surprising that a guy who had nothing but notebooks full of numbers didn't get very far in trying to change minds.
5: And then just as it seemed as if English Shocker would ignore Reap forever... I'd never come across that type of football um, before in terms of tactics, data, the statistics. Easily you could describe it as football by numbers. More of that after the break.
0: Hey Joe, so we're back and while the listeners were learning all about Charles Reap... We watched a video lecture from The Great Courses Plus on the history of big data. What do you think? Mind
1: blown. I was so into that lecture about how new statistics transform sports. I mean, it went all the way from Isaac Newton to Steph Curry. I
0: think I have more knowledge than you now, Neil. Whoa, Joe, not too fast. But if you did ever want to know more than me, all you'd need to do is sign up for the Great Courses Plus. I mean, in this big data series alone, there are video lectures on all kinds of 53080 topics like bracketology, algorithms, even political polling.
1: Hmm, maybe I can turn myself into the next Nate Silver.
0: Maybe aim a little lower, Joe. Start with whiz kid Harry Enten and see how it goes. All you got to do is sign up for The Great Courses Plus. Right now, ahead of their time, listeners and podcast producers get a whole month of unlimited access to all of their lectures, no charge. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash time right now. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash time to get an entire month of unlimited access to all of The Great Courses Plus lectures when you sign up for free. Now, back to the show.
1: In the early 1980s, Wimbledon Football Club was a fourth division team, way down in the league.
5: My name is Terry Gibson. I'm a former professional football player for Wimbledon Football Club. I played for there for six seasons in the 80s and 90s. Anyone that knows London, Wimbledon is a, a nice part of London.
1: You know the place where they play tennis every year and they drink pims and eat strawberries. But the soccer club wasn't quite so nice.
5: I never had the fortune or misfortune to play at Plough Lane as a visiting player. It was a ramshackle old stadium. The training ground, training facilities were dreadful. And Wimbledon were pretty much universally hated. There were players in in the team at at Wimbledon that believed they weren't doing their job properly if they weren't getting yellow cards and red cards.
2: Here's McMahon. Oof, Vinnie Jones caught him there. Now that's precisely the sort of challenge that uh, Wimbledon...
5: Have been reputed to produce. By former teammates of mine that openly admitted that when they played against Wimbledon, their main priority was, was not getting injured. That aggression and hostility went hand in hand with a particular
1: style of play. In the early 1980s, Wimbledon played a pretty standard version of soccer, pass and move, and they were languishing. Then their manager, Dave Bassett, decided things needed to change. He learned coaching from a guy who was heavily influenced by Charles Reap. So he hired a statistician, invited Reap down to the stadium and the next thing you know, Wimbledon were playing long ball soccer.
5: That meant goalkeeper kicking the ball long at every opportunity. A defender kicking the ball long at every opportunity into the attacking half of the pitch. It meant midfield players taking as least the amount of touches as possible, to hoof the ball on into the opposing half. They told me to pretty much switch my brain off and just do as I was told and stick with the system. I was brought up at Tottenham Hotspur. Everything was built around technique and skill. They were little passes over the top or in between defenders for me to run onto.
1: But at Wimbledon, the coaches told the players they could
5: only pass the ball a few times per move. So our, our approach to the game was... From kick off, we passed it all the way back to the goalkeeper, um, who then dribbled the ball out of the goal. He would then be able to kick the ball into the opposing penalty area. Up oh, goes the kick from Dave Besant, and down it comes on Fairweather's
2: head. and Sayer is in here. It's Sayer. Good stop. Fashion for Wimbledon. It's a goal. They're in front.
1: Three passes done. This was a style of soccer
5: that wasn't based on intuition. It was based on stats. I'd never come across that type of football before in terms of tactics, data, the statistics. Easily you could describe it as football by numbers.
1: Wimbledon rose from the bottom of the fourth division to near the top of the first in just a few seasons.
2: Go into the record books. A crowd of over
5: 10,000 have seen a side who weren't even in the football league eight years ago defeat a team who quite recently won the European Cup twice. What a fairy tale.
1: Everyone thought they were playing simplistic soccer, straight out of the Sunday league. Wimbledon's cup hopes rested on just one
3: tactic. Get the ball in as high and as often as possible and hope for the best. But
1: actually, it was straight out of the statistician's handbook. And while Wimbledon were an extreme example of Reapian soccer in action, other teams were doing similar things. A coach called Graham Taylor worked with Reap at Watford and within a few years they were at the top of the league and Taylor was appointed England's manager. Long ball soccer was now official policy in the very highest echelons of the English game. The English Football Association even produced a coaching manual that advocated Reapian-style soccer.
3: And this book, The Winning Formula sells thousands and thousands of copies to to coaches Jonathan Wilson again and it sort of becomes the main textbook at the National Centre of Excellence and that's where promising young English players are sent each year all
1: these talented young players were being taught that skills and passing just weren't that important the creativity was drummed out of English soccer and the game ended up just like Charles Reap wanted it
5: Most goals were achieved by, it was something ridiculous, less than three or four passes. The statistics backed up what we were doing. Except it turns out that actually, they don't.
1: One Saturday, Jonathan Wilson was travelling to cover a game.
3: I was on a train going from Newcastle to Manchester, and we were delayed by a points failure at Durham. So I sat on this train... Reading just going through on my laptop a, a chapter of Inverting the Pyramid.
1: Inverting the Pyramid is the book he wrote about soccer tactics. He's been working on it for two years and he's almost done. So he was reading over the chapter he'd written
3: on REAP. And as I read the stats, it suddenly tweaked in my brain. This doesn't work. The
1: stats actually don't add up. Now, despite working at 538, my brain can't really handle even the most simple math. So to explain why they don't
0: add up, here's Neil Payne. Reap's big error was that he confused correlation with causation. So, he tracked the number of passes that most commonly lead to goals, and what he found was that most goals come from moves of three passes or fewer. Therefore, he thought that if you want to score more goals, you need to have more of those moves of three passes or fewer. And that seems kind of logical, right? But it turns out that it's also pretty incomplete, because almost everything in soccer involves three passes or fewer, including moves that don't lead to goals. And if you look at Reap's own numbers, they show that if you try to move of three or fewer passes, you're actually less likely to score a goal than if you tried more passes. So the secret to scoring more goals was actually the complete opposite of what Reap thought it was. And it was staring him in the face the whole time. It was a real
3: eureka moment. And kind of, I'm sat on a packed train and I'm desperate to tell somebody, like, I've just worked this thing out. This thing has destroyed English football and I've just disproved it. And, you know, also wanting somebody to look at it and go, well, actually, you're wrong. Or go, oh God, yeah, you're right, because you know when you're having something like that, you don't quite trust yourself. But he was right, and in fact, Reap was
1: wrong all along. The real lesson that possession and passing is actually a more efficient way of playing was buried deep in the numbers. It just took someone else to figure it out.
3: I have to say, I looked at this for like two years, and then it suddenly dawned on me. Maybe those strands just never crossed in his head.
1: This whole theory that had changed the face of English soccer was based on bad math. But it did work for Wimbledon and lots of other teams for a time.
3: Where the players are less technically gifted, that is effective. There's almost a case of any plan is better than no plan. At least if everybody knows what you're trying to do, everybody's working to the the same goal.
1: For a small club with a terrible record, it can work. But for a national team like England, playing against some of the best countries in the world, it's predictable. It doesn't take long for a good side to work out. You don't really have any skills. All you're doing is hoofing the ball as far as you can up the pitch and kind of hoping for the best.
3: Look at the, the catastrophic state of English football in the early 90s when they go to the Euros in 92 and produce the most embarrassing, the worst performance of any England national side at any major tournament ever and crash out in the group stage having played abysmal football. And then they fail even to qualify for the World Cup nineteen ninety four. And the
2: referee has his whistle to his lips and Norway have beaten England in Oslo in the World Cup. England absolutely down and
1: out. Reap's theories and the style of soccer they inspired actively hurt the English game.
3: So why did so many people buy into what was essentially junk science? I, I think that Reap is interesting from a social point of view in that he's somebody from a middle class, maybe even upper middle class background who suddenly starts taking an interest in football, who's university educated, and perhaps because of that, is more prepared to use abstract reasoning to try and break the game down, rather than the sort of intuitive gut understanding of a game which had predominated before. There's a scientific aspect, but there's also something slightly mystical about it. Here's this sort of shaman saying, I have the answer. And that's a, that's a lovely idea, the, the thought that there is a formula that will make you win football matches. I mean, there's not, but it's a nice idea that there might be.
1: There might not be a formula for winning soccer games, but Reap understood there is a tactical advantage in actually understanding what the players are doing on the field. His friend Graham Ramsey says Reap was doing things then that have made stat-finding companies like Opta into multi-million dollar operations.
2: I think it's been alive today... He'd be driving around the Rolls Royce. I would defend him any day of the week. I mean, I just don't know anybody else on this planet that's ever done what he's done.
1: And even though he was wrong, or it turns out he wasn't so good at math, Reap was interested in things that we talk about all the time here at 538. Here he is in that radio interview from 1993.
4: The, the result of the match does not in any way... Indicate the true merit of the teams concerned.
1: REAP encouraged the idea that soccer and sports actually have a
4: lot to do with luck. So the actual score of goals is very largely a matter of chance.
3: I think what REAP did was, was fascinating and has led to some quite interesting developments. There is something great about him. I mean, he was the first person in England to think of doing this, the first, first person to think that trying to analyse a game was something worth doing. You need somebody to be first, and Reap was the first. So I think he, he will always have an important place in English football history.
1: Important, but ignominious. After England's disastrous performances in the early 90s, Reap was really shut out of English soccer. But that didn't stop him going to games. He'd still travel every Saturday to grounds up and down the country, notebook in hand... Miner's helmet on his head.
2: Well, I still with him at one game. Some people look at him, you know, what the hell is he doing? You know, should be taking his dog for a walk or something like that. And some people took the mickey out of him, but he just ignored him, you know, and
1: moved on. And he kept sending his notoriously long letters to friends and managers and coaches he wanted to convert to his cause, however dead in the water it was.
2: Dear Graham, when we said goodbye at Plymouth Railway Station He'd describe in
1: minute detail his views on the latest October, developments in the soccer no world His theories that and that notes on game, not after game after game you, after game Even how he spent his company, days in retirement
2: I haven't had a, a game of golf for, for five weeks Worst of all, I got myself vaccinated for Beijing flu
1: On and on and, uh, for 20 he on, pages like he'd the, ramble
2: He uh, used to get these long ones I'm going to fade out now on the page. The speaker is bowing out and good night. <laughs> That's Charles.
1: <laughs> so he was very long winded. Well, he could be. But you liked him.
2: I loved him. I mean, he's a guy that had the intelligence, he had an idea that nobody else had, and he should be valued, not chastised.
1: Reeb came up with a theory that was actually behind the times, even though he did it in a way that was way ahead of its time. But his idea ended up draining the creativity out of English soccer. And for that, many won't forgive him.
3: It's utterly depressing. I mean, the idea of a spectacle, the idea of putting on a show, the idea of football as some kind of art, I think just is lost completely in English football in the 80s and early 90s.
1: Reap made the beautiful game ugly. I know how depressing that is. I grew up in the 1990s. I remember England's performances at countless major championships. I've seen countless English players getting outclassed time and again by superior foreign opposition. Of course, it's not all Reap's fault. England didn't lose to Iceland because of Charles Reap. But his theories helped create a rot in the core of English soccer. And that doesn't look like ending anytime soon.
3: Final score here. In nice is England one, Iceland two.
2: It's coming, coming we'll go on it's getting, back, back, as I'm getting back, so getting, getting
1: back, so getting back, getting back. This episode was reported and produced by me. It was engineered by Tim Einenkel. Our editor was Jody Avigan, with help from Julia Henderson, Emma Morgenstern, Andrew Mambo and Rose Eveler. Production assistance came from Paul Williard. Our web designers were Gus Wazerek and Kate LaRue. Thanks to Tony Chow, Jorge Estrada and Ryan Nantel for help in the studio. And thanks also to Katie McAuliffe and Marcus Henderson for their very thorough fact checks. Another big shout-out is in order to Pete Giannacini in Bristol. For more about Charles Reap, check out the companion piece Neil Payne wrote on 538. And for more 538 podcasts, visit 538.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to our parent podcast, Hot Takedown, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Next week on Ahead of Their Time, we tell the story of the woman who invented the two-handed backhand.
2: I couldn't really hold it and release it, so I just started using a double-handed backhand. It was way too pushy. He would say, you don't win, you don't eat. We probably brought it to the masses. It was like an epidemic of two-handed backhands after a while.